Your life should be doing what you love with the people you love in the places you love. And if it's not that, then change it now. I'm Amy Jo Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now show. You know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. Many years ago, I was going through a very challenging season, both personally and professionally. And I had this life coach suggest that I read a book by Martha Beck titled Finding Your Own North Star. Well, today we get to hear directly from Martha Beck herself because she's on the show. This is hard for me to even believe because this woman is something else. Martha has three degrees from Harvard, no big deal, including her PhD in sociology She's the author of countless best-selling books, and she's a life coach. But not just your average life coach. She is coach to Oprah. In fact, Oprah has said that Martha is one of the smartest women she's ever met. In this episode, Martha and I cover a lot of ground. We talk through the process she uses to make decisions, why it's untrue that working hard leads to success, how to shift out of the ego operating system and to stop grasping, and how to transcend that victim, villain, hero drama triangle that many of us get caught up in, among many other topics that we cover. Martha truly has a blueprint for stress-free living. Who doesn't want to hear more about that? How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. For me, being able to design my own day is a non-negotiable. As many of you know, I'm a bit of a time management nerd. So when I find something that allows me to be more efficient and more effective, I want to share it with everyone. So here's the scoop. I have a new tool in my productivity tool belt, and I'm a bit obsessed. It's monday.com. My team and I have never felt more organized. And I have a new sense of perceived control. My to-do list is no longer the boss of me. I feel more in control because every project, initiative, date, and task is captured and organized in one place. And my team is in the loop and involved every step of the way. With Monday.com, it's like I have a brand new operating system. There's no long list and everything has its own home, its own deadline, its own team member that's assigned and associated, and it's color-coordinated. 
We all have multifaceted jobs and businesses. There are many components to my business, and each and every one of them has its own compartment. Each division is always one click away. For example, my team and I have a dedicated board for this very podcast. Did you know there are 28 steps involved in getting one podcast to air? It's the same exact process every time. And it's a system. We have the various key steps mapped out as micro tasks. And this allows for my team and I to stay in lockstep every step of the way. With Monday.com, I can zoom out and see the big picture, a roadmap view from 30,000 feet. And a moment later, I can zoom in and focus on a specific micro task within a project, within a division of the company. I could go on and on about the features that Monday.com offers, one of which is I've built my social media content calendar inside of Monday.com. I finally have one that I actually use, that I like, and it's embedded into my overall Google calendar. Another feature that I love is the Google Doc integration. You know I love a good spreadsheet. I can pull them into monday.com and edit them right there versus having 97 tabs open on my computer. If how we spend our days is how we spend our lives, then I can't think of anything more important than using the time in our days wisely. Head to monday.com if you want a free trial. And let me know on social media how it goes for you. Shoot me a DM. We can swap tips and tricks. Martha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And in the spirit of why not now, let's hop in. Can you tell me about a time when you had a big decision to make and you had to ask yourself, why not now? We'll talk about that day, that minute, that hour, that season, and dissect it a little bit. Great. Well, I have been, my, the history of my life could be summed up in why not now. Um, I tend to be somebody who leaps into new experience sometimes to my chagrin, but, um, right now I'm surrounded by moving boxes. I've been living on a ranch in the California woods for several years. And one day my family and I got talking and I was saying, I, I really need to spend some time on the East coast to write the next book I'm planning. And we all started saying that sounded like a, a nice thing for the future. And then we looked at each other and said, why not now? And this was about hmm, three months ago, and we're moving. We're in the midst of it now. Whoa, that's a big one. And that's a, that's yeah. a quick pulling of the trigger. So it was a conversation. Was it one conversation? What green lit it? It was one single conversation. And um <laughs> That's, as I said, that's sort of how I live my life. I figure, you know, we've got a very brief span on Earth, and I'm here to have as many adventures as possible. So when an idea comes up and those who love each other all feel the same impulse to act, Mm -hmm. I don't hesitate. I didn't hesitate buying this huge ranch in California, which I spent... Literally on my 50th birthday, I bought a ranch with all my money, which is not the best financial (laughs) strategy you could have. But I knew in my bones that I needed to to live in the woods for a while. And and I knew the place I wanted to go. And once my family was in, boom. And then, yeah, we all were just sitting around chatting. 
and it was time to move again. So why not now? Would I know you... that may sound kind of anticlimactic um, compared to some other decisions people make because it's so matter of fact for me. It seems to me, is would you say it's kind of like a muscle that you've built a mentality over time or have you always, yeah? Yeah, yeah it's like I always, I've been saying to clients, you know, I've been doing life coaching for like 30 years now and I used to say to people, look, if you don't want to do something and you don't have to do something, don't do it. And it's interesting how many people took that as shocking, startling new wisdom. If you don't want to do something and you don't have to do something, then don't do it. It was like, wait, blow my mind. So the converse of that is if you do want to do something and there's nothing stopping you from doing it, do it. Do it right away. You don't know what tomorrow's like. Like, I've been in this field of, I didn't know what to call myself when I started seeing clients. I called myself a life designer. (laughs) And the idea was we lead our lives. We create them with what we imagine and then what we dare to do. As Helen Keller said, life is either a brave adventure or nothing. So most people just imagine more of what they've experienced because they've been trained not to think bigger than that because society benefits from people staying small. And I was kind of raised by wolves and never learned that lesson. <laughs> so it's just been, hey, if you want to do something and nothing's stopping it, do it now. Do now. it right now. I also just loved what you said. When those who love each other don't hesitate, then you do it now or you make the decision now. And that was, you know, that really struck me when you just said that because it's, and you, you use the word love. And I've never heard, and all the people I've interviewed about this question and dissecting this question and the mentality and operating systems, the word love in there is such a powerful igniter and green lighter. (laughs) Not that I'm, that sounds very poetic, but (laughs) wow, that's interesting. Your life should be doing what you love with the people you love in the places you love. And if it's not that, then change it now, right now. Like change it to be just a little bit better. And then there are times that you'll be able to change it hugely. But we practice with the little things. You know, and I make this decision a thousand times a day. What is my heart telling me would be even better? You know, would it be even better if, you know, I went out and covered myself in bird seed and let the chipmunks and the birds land on me for an hour while I meditate? Like, you know, anything, anything that comes to mind. Like live your life from that creative space and you'll have all kinds of adventures. And that's what we're here for, isn't it? Yes. Oh, it's really exciting to hear the energy in your voice and your zest for life. I was just remembering something that happened when I was 20 that really nailed this in place. I had just gotten married and moved to Singapore with a guy I had fallen in love with at Harvard. And uh, he was going on a on a fellowship to Asia. And I was like, why not now? So I married him and left the next day for, uh, to live in Asia for a year and a half. And we had a friend at this Chinese university where we were studying Chinese, tall, redheaded, beautiful American college student. She was just gorgeous and wacky and so full of life. And I saw her at a New Year's Eve party and I realized I hadn't seen her for a long time. And I said, hey, 
where have you been? And she said, well, I had to lose 10 pounds. And I just decided that I was going to stay in my dorm room, except for classes. I was going to stay in my dorm room and not let myself leave until I'd lost the 10 pounds. She said, I've lost the 10 pounds. It was the worst three months of my life. I'm ready to live. This last year sucked. The next year is going to be great. The next day she was killed in a bus accident. And I kept thinking, what would she have done with that three months if she'd known they were her last? You know, life is short. Eat dessert first is my motto after that. And I was already that way, but that one really, that stayed with me. And that's a, that's a ripe age too, to be getting that message so strongly. I can imagine that just compounds over time. So Martha, I was, as I was preparing to talk with you and, and also kind of looking back, I have your, your, one of your books in front of me right now, Finding Your Own North Star, that was, um, it's all tattered and I have these, um, these highlights and these notes because, and right before we hopped on, I went into my Gmail and I uh, searched your name because I had this life coach who was incredible. Her shout out to Mary Maisie Ireland, who, uh, Magic Mary, as I called her, who told me a lot about your work when I was going through a, a really challenging time in 2011. And I found this email. Well, first of all, your name is in a lot of these emails between her and I. But I found this email. It was August 30th, 2011. And my homework was to read this book. And so I got the book, start reading it. And I was on the verge of a complete burnout, like emotionally, physically, just running on fumes, exhausted and bankrupt. A lot of things going on personally, professionally. And, um, I found this this line that I highlighted, and I'm going to read it to you because I'd love for us to talk a little bit about this, and it really parlays well from what we were just talking about of, of doing what you want to do. And um, so I, I remember reading this line too, and I think I tweeted it at the time because that's what I did. I shared everything on Twitter. And uh, it says, if you want to do a really good job at this, you're going to have to stop thinking about doing a really good job. To find your North Star, you must teach your social self to relax and back off. And I remember reading that line that you wrote, and I immediately thought, I can't relax. What do you mean, back off? I need to get this stuff down. I need to power through this book. It's going to help me, and you know, I need to push on the gas. And years later, there's been a long journey in learning a little bit more of when to let things happen versus make them happen. But... Let's talk, what do you mean by that? If you want to do a really good job at this, you're going to have to stop thinking about doing a really good job and relax, back up. Yeah, and, and it, it's important that it's the social self. I My PhD is in sociology, and so I've really, for my whole adult life, sort of pondered the fact that the only thing that makes us make decisions that aren't from the inside, from our true selves, from our unique essential selves, are the messages we get from either trauma or from cultural training. So the culture tells us, be careful, uh, keep your nose to the grindstone, you can't succeed without a lot of work, don't you dare be frivolous, 
never relax. That's our culture. It's not every culture, but it's certainly Western culture and American culture for sure. That puritanical work ethic. One commentator said puritanism, which founded America, is the haunting fear that somebody somewhere may be happy. (laughs) (laughs) So that's our culture. And I call it the social self. And you'll find that the animal of your body and your and your deep emotions has its own way of choosing what it will do next. And those are always the things that benefit you more. And then more than what you think, the things that you think have been taught to you, usually in language, by example, um, by negative, by punishment and criticism from parents and other caregivers and, and educators. And that part of you doesn't know what's best for you. It's not from you. It's from outside you. So somebody who's lost the inside heart, the lost connection with the essential self, but has a really strong social self is like a ship that has a really powerful engine, but it's lost its compass and charts and it has no destination. It just powers along no going nowhere. And the better way for me is to turn down the volume volume on all cultural messages from your family, from your religion, from your nation, from your politics, everything, and listen to what's happening in your true nature. And that those messages come up from the body, from the emotions. And if you, we think they're stupid compared to the mind, but the mind, the cognitive part of the mind is processing about 11 million bits of information per second, which is huge. The non-cognitive mind, which has been evolving far longer, is processing billions of bits of information per second. So the wiser part of us is the part that isn't screaming the cultural messages and learning to turn down the volume and say, okay, I hear you. That's what mom said. That's what dad said. That's what my minister said. But what am I feeling? What Mm -hmm. am I feeling? Uh, And if you want to talk about ministers, it, it was Jesus who said, what profiteth? it a person if they should gain the whole world and lose their own soul nothing so that to me is the practice is lose the world and gain your soul and see what comes back to you so when we think about whether we call it intuition the little voice the inner knowing i know i've really struggled with this. I've been that ship with the engine, the powerful engine that has lost its compass. And I gotten myself into a lot of trouble and some really rocky waters mm-hmm. in that case. And I've really been trying to work on this over the last several years, especially. And, um, you know, in, in speaking with people and trying to uh, see if there are ways to, to turn up the volume specifically or, or listen a little better any kind of little tangible tactical tricks I can do. And I hear things here and there. But for someone who is really sometimes struggling to hear that voice or maybe I'm scared to listen to the voice, <laughs> um, what, do you, what, what suggestions do you give to them? Um, well, the first one and the one that never fails and the one that every client always needs, no matter how knowledgeable they are, is the body, the body, the body. So Ken Robinson says, um, he's an educator in Britain, and he says, 
most of us consider the body just a vehicle that takes the head to meetings because our culture is so mind-centered. But if you track the feeling of something in your body, the intelligence of your nonverbal self will guide you through sensations. And in Finding Your Own North Star, I go on and on about this. And it's the first thing I put in the book, and it's, I'm still repeating it 30 years later. Imagine doing something and notice the response in your physical body. So if I imagine staying on this ranch, which I've loved so much, I have a strange feeling of um, kind of a hollow sensation in my gut and a feeling of just anxiety. Like it, it, it feels wrong in my tummy and wrong in my head, even though I've loved every second of it. When I think about going to a, this new place, what I feel is like something almost bursting out of my chest with energy. And that makes no sense to my mind. Mm. It makes no sense. Mm-hmm. It just happens when the wisdom of your deeper self kicks in and it will talk to you through suffering and delight. And there is not a clearer set of circumstance, instructions anywhere on earth. And yet so many of us go into our own suffering, into our own misery for weeks, months, years, decades. We keep trudging into what makes our whole body shut down and refusing to give ourselves what gives us this vital, beautiful energy. It's just mm-hmm. that's what society tells us to do. It's powerful stuff. And I, I guess it's uh, something I'm learning. It's definitely a practice. And I'm finding when I reward that voice a little more, it seems like it rewards me with maybe getting a little louder, if that makes sense. Yeah. When I first started, I was fortunate enough to have 12 years of chronic pain that was almost incapacitating. And I was in bed most of my 20s, um, just lying there in inexplicable pain, being diagnosed with this or that autoimmune disease. So I became very aware of my body and very aware of its sensations. And as I started to, at first it was very faint, but I could feel when something would create more tension and therefore more pain in the body. And yes, as I started paying attention to it, it's like when you learn to track an animal in, in the forest, when you learn what the, that footprint looks like, you start seeing it in subtler and subtler places and you become a much better tracker. And you learn to track your own happiness through the substrate of the physical body. That is the compass and charts. That is what is going to take you to the life that will make you happiest. Mm. So with this essential self and the social self, when we add social media to this concept of these two, or just in general, the evolution of social media, sure. what are your thoughts and and takeaways of what that starts to do with essential self versus social self it's just like anything else if you find if you have joy and a sense of fascination with something on social media go for it do it now why not now if something makes you feel drained like certain things on Facebook make me feel energized and certain things make me feel like my soul is being sucked into this vortex. Mm-hmm. And I just not going to do the things that make me feel yucky, no matter what people say you, you're supposed to do for social media, for your business or whatever. And I have a virtual business, but I won't go in a place that feels yucky to my body. 
And yet certain aspects of social media are very playful, very creative, very artistic for me. I love, like, I have an app where I can create these, um, I call them memes. My daughter calls them macro quotes or something on pictures. I love that stuff. <laughs> I, I love the spiritual teacher, Byron Katie, mm-hmm. and I write a lot about her, and she's one of my heroes. And the last time I saw her, and she's like this 75-year-old spiritual master, right? Like she's, I, I believe she is whatever enlightened means she is it. And the last time I saw her, she said, you know, I don't really care about much anymore except Instagram. <laughs> and Byron Katie, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yes. How cool is that? So I think we're led, you know, the people listening to this recording, I hope will have felt their bodies spark with joy when they decided to turn it on. I hope that it's still pulling their their souls, their essential selves, in the way that the soul goes toward nourishment, the way when animals smell water in in a drought, they go toward the water. There are places on the internet that are completely drought-stricken for me, and there are places that are just a bubbling, pure spring that, that nourishes and rehydrates me. So avoid the first kind of social media and go toward the second. Yeah, such simple but brilliant advice, especially because we have full control over what we follow, who we follow, what we consume when it comes to social. You know, we're electing and volunteering to see and be exposed to things. So it can be equally as good as bad if we just decide where we want to be. It's amazing. There are a lot of advertisers and so on trying to sort of hypnotize us. There's something called the Gruen transfer, which is named after the social scientist who, who discovered it, Gruen. And it takes place in um, shopping centers. If you blast people with enough music, bright lights, um, smells, and, and fascinating images, they actually go into a trance. And, at, for example, at shopping malls, they design them so that when you first go in, you have to turn three times which makes you, it makes the brain forget where your car is. Mm-hmm. So if you try to find your car, you get confused and you spend more time in the shopping mall and you're literally sometimes in a state of hypnosis and you'll just buy more stuff. That also happens online. People are studying every day to make us go into the trance of buying. The body doesn't like that, but the mind will go with it. So be really aware of things where it's almost like a sick addiction where you keep doing something while your body's going, ugh, I don't like this. Again, you have to track it. And this is a little bit of, I guess it's in the same zone. Um, I've I've heard, I don't know if you wrote this or if someone wrote this about things that you said, but basically it was a list of things that we need to unlearn, lessons that we need to unlearn. And one of them was working hard leads to success. You know, speaking of especially social media and this philosophy of um, hustling and grinding and just romanticizing that nature of work as hard as you possibly can and then you'll make it type of thing. I used to subscribe to that and it got me into a lot of trouble. I was driving my ship around without my compass, subscribing to that, and it it wasn't super pretty. I definitely have to, to turn that off, but you've basically said working hard leads to success is something we need to unlearn. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, um, there's this idea, you know, the school system was set up to create compliant factory workers. And the idea is that you're supposed to sit in rows and everybody do the same task at the same time. And this, and, and we need to harden ourselves to the fact that that is the reality of life. Now, before about 200 years ago, no one ever got educated that way. And the human child, the human adult, learns most quickly outside with all five senses active, moving the body and solving problems that are necessary for survival. That is the optimal environment for learning for a human. The way our society conditions us to work, 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 first in school, then in jobs, is literally the direct opposite. It is the worst environment for a human being to thrive in, to learn in, to be alive in. So not only do we think we have to work constantly, we have to work in this way that is very mechanical and robotic. I believe in joyful activity. I believe in playing until you, you know, you're exhausted and sweaty and joyful. That's the kind of thing that leads to success. But work, new, new. What we call work deadens the soul. And there, there are so many people trying to do it all at the same time. And they're all trying to sell something. And if something has the feeling of just that deadly work in it, mm-hmm. it doesn't attract people. It doesn't sell well. If it has joy in it, if it was made in joy, if it was sold in joy, if it was, if everything about it is playful, people freaking love that. That's the kind of stuff that goes viral, that sells big, that, that reaches customers. Um, Daniel Pinker, who's a, a journalist, wrote about how in the 21st century, the most sellable skills are story design and symphony, which are all artistic skills. So story is just being able to tell a story. Design is visuals. And symphony is bringing together unlike things and making them blend. Mm. And the other three are empathy, play, and meaning. So if you don't have in what you do for a living, empathy, play, and meaning, and maybe also story, symphony, and design, you're actually not going to do as well as if you go into, into play into empathy, play, and meaning. And then if you can find something that rivets your own attention and you create something from that space, other people will want it because it's filled with the joy of play, of creativity. And that's the new economy. We live in an economy where knowledge is no longer power because there's so damn much knowledge flooding us all the time. Attention is power. If you can get positive attention that will enable you to make a living in the modern world. And the best way to do that is by having the most joyful, the most playful, the most creative life you possibly can. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Are you ready for change? Or maybe you're already in a season of expansion. As we embrace this new decade... Are you ready to take action on your own Why Not Now idea? Maybe that means starting the company, launching the podcast, writing the book, or doing more public speaking, injecting your why into what you are doing. At the end of the day, that is exactly what creates connection. And connections convert. 
My life work is to help guide women through this very stage in their life. I do this through the Renegade Brand Bootcamp. It truly is the career love of my life. The reason I love this program so much is because I'm able to create a mosaic, a collection of like-minded, like-hearted, driven women who come together to level up. They learn the renegade mentality directly from me, and I share everything I've learned over the past 20 years in business. It's equal parts education, collaboration, accountability, and community. We are accepting applications for our 2020 program, and you are welcome to go check everything out about the program at renegadebrandbootcamp.com. And as a very first step, just sign up for my five-day email series. I uncover all of the questions about the bootcamp and help you understand if it's right for you. We've had some incredible women come through the program, and you will hear from them as well. You can check out the curriculum, the structure, the vibe, and everything in between. Many years ago, I went to Mark Cuban and asked him for investment advice. I thought I was going to get some real estate or stock market type of advice. Instead, he said, invest in yourself. Invest in your own growth. Invest in yourself. Bet on yourself. This is the best ROI you will ever find. If you're at that point where you are ready to take action, head to renegadebrandbootcamp.com. What a great time to be a marketer, to to have something that you want to share because right? all of those things are positive, you know, and attractive. Wow. I'm not a big fan of work. I, I, I think I've written somewhere, people say I work like a dog, but have you ever seen a dog work? Like <laughs> no. seeing huskies pulling a sled or um, a hunting dog retrieving a bird. I mean, they freaking love it. They live for it. Exactly. <laughs> I just think we should work like that. Yeah, that's a great point. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. If you are digging this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. It just takes a moment and it means a ton to us. Also, after recording more than 100 episodes, I've created a bit of a cheat sheet on the top five things I've learned from renegades and how they get from idea to action, from dreaming to doing. I will email you the downloadable PDF when you subscribe to my newsletter. Just head to amyjoemartin.com and click on connect with me. Speaking of work, you've said before when you're working from love instead of ego, then you are the creator. And if we could just dissect that a little bit, because um, ego is something uh, we've talked about quite a bit on this show, and it's I guess my question for you is, what are the indicators for a person if if they f- want to detect whether or not they're kind of in that ego operating system or not? First of all, I just need to clarify that when I say ego right now, I'm not talking about the Freudian sense where there's the ego, the superego, and the id. And I'm also not talking about the colloquial use of ego as arrogance, like, oh, he's got such an ego. What I'm I'm talking about is kind of the Asian philosophy um, view of ego, ego, which is the concept of being a limited, endangered, separate, small self 
that needs to fight its way through a dark world. Um, the opposite of that is the loss of ego where you realize that you're one with all things. And as Nisargadatta Maharaj says, you look outside you and realize you're nothing. And that is wisdom. You look inside you and realize you are everything. And that is love. And between those two, your life turns. So that's what happens when you're out of ego in this sort of Asian philosophy, philosophical sense. <clears throat> and the way you can know if something is from ego is that you will feel the energy of grasping. Mm. You will feel a fearful need to hang on to or get something and a reluctance to lose it. Um, there's a sense of scarcity. And the word grasping is really, for me, um, that's the tell-all. If I feel myself grasping at something, if I put something up on Instagram because I'm having fun and I'm sharing something I love with people, and and I can just walk away and not and just say, I hope you all love it, <laughs> that is scaring from love. If I put something up because I want more users, I want people to you know share, like me on Instagram, like me on Instagram, and I start to attach to that and need it and feel happy if I get more people and sad if I get fewer people, that's ego. It's lashed to the wheel of suffering and you know pleasure and pain, seeking pleasure and running from pain. Ego lives in that state of constant seeking and grasping and resisting. So resisting pain, grasping at pleasure. Either resisting or grasping are egoic qualities. When you're out of ego, everything is allowing and surrendering. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, this is what's happening. I am down with that. I can absolutely not resist the world being the way it is in this moment. I can absolutely allow everything that's already happening to be happening. It's just, and I'm, I'm going to bob along in the flow of things because I'm not a small isolated self. I am self with a capital S, which is the consciousness of the creator. And I can trust it absolutely. And I can just relax. Oh, so good. So the grasping, that word just really brought it home for me. I mean, what a good filter to check in with yourself and... And then it kind of, it sounds like it goes back to intent eventually. It's like, why? The example of posting something on social. Um, wow. That's so, it's, it's, that's good. That's a good tool to kind of, and then if you're in, if you find you are uh, operating from your, and your definition of ego, how do you shift that into love? How do you evolve if, if you're wanting to, to hop the fence, if you realize. Uh, what you first, yeah. The first thing to do is to notice that you are either in resistance to what's happening or you're grasping at what's happening. Once you notice that you're in resisting or grasping, they're both, they're both types of suffering. So when something happens that we hate and we resist it, we suffer. And when something happens that we love and we immediately become terrified of it leaving us or not lasting forever, that's suffering as well. So when we notice that we're in that state, anxiety, depression, feelings of need and lack, the first thing is to just say, oh, there it is. There's ego. Hello, ego. Hello. It's like in Seinfeld where he would meet with Newman and go, hello, Newman. <laughs> I have to remember that, but it was funny. I, I kind of do that. Hello, ego. <laughs> but the second step is 
you have to not resist or grasp at a state of non-ego. You don't grasp the state of selflessness or resist a state of ego because that just reinforces ego. Right, okay. So what you do is you offer it love. You offer it compassion. Uh, there you are. You're in resistance. Well, you're just a monkey. You're going to do that. And I can love a monkey. Oh, now you're... you're grasping at pleasure oh, well monkeys do that i i love monkeys it's okay it's the monkey self mm. um the biological primate that we are it's designed to grasp and resist but there's a part of us it's in a different part of the brain the part of the brain that falls in love and that has mystical experiences we can go there and be the watcher and say oh the monkey is grasping that's okay monkey the, the monkey is resisting. That's okay, monkey, of course. But then you don't let the monkey steer your life. You get identified with the, the watcher that has compassion for the monkey, and it gets a different set of instructions. Mm -hmm. And that rises up inside the body, and we experience it as warmth and love and relaxation. And that's the way animals make choices. So learn from your cat or your dog or your canary or your lizard. They all make wiser choices than we do. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So good. The, it, the tools are just, they're gems. And I appreciate your ability to articulate this so clearly. And, um, and I guess that's, you've, you've been doing this for a long time. You've written many books. And I'm working on my second book right now. And I had this moment the other day where I thought, wait a minute, I don't know that I'm a, I'm a voice of authority about this. I'm still living it and, and it's a practice and I don't think I'm ready to share this yet because who, it was kind of a, who am I to, but it was more of, I think I'm still in it. You've obviously been through a lot in your life and you've written a lot uh, and you also have the education, but have you ever had moments where maybe it's with any kind of art, and let's just use writing as an example, where you thought, you know, I'm still in this, but I'm going to keep going or I'm going to pause? And how do you decide? Yeah, um, it happened with my second memoir, which is called Leaving the Saints, and it's about how I left Mormonism. And it's got some fairly sensational things about my family of origin, some abuse I experienced as a child. And it also takes a very strong stance on my feelings about this particular religion. And I knew that that would be a, hard, a bitter pill to swallow for my entire community of origin. And I, I wouldn't write that book. I didn't write it until 10 years had passed from the, the events that I described because it was very emotionally um, difficult. I had to go through a lot of my own uh, awakening and releasing attachments to bits of that story. And I wrote it when, not when I was done with everything, we're never going to be done with everything, but I wrote it when I no longer had any sense of being a victim. As long as you have found a way to be powerful within your circumstance, you can lead people out of darkness. So I'm teaching this writing course online. And 
one of the exercises are meant to take people into places where they've been, uh, where they've experienced something difficult. Because that, that's what interesting writing is. There's no great movies about somebody who just had a wonderful day and nothing happened. Um, so we write about the things that challenge us. We write about adventures. But challenges can make us feel victimized at, some time, at certain points in time. And then our, it's our, our opportunity for the victim self to become the creator, the empowerer of the self in that particular situation. So as long as you still feel like a victim of a situation and you haven't found the power to walk out of it into a light, then you probably shouldn't be writing about it, I, I, in my opinion. But once you have found your own power and you've learned how to translate that um, difficulty into a source of inspiration and empowerment, go ahead and write about it, even though you're not finished. You'll never be finished. Mm. But write from a place of of being empowered rather than from a place of victimization. Very helpful uh, and brings some clarity for sure. Uh, Do you feel like you're not a victim of that now? I definitely feel like I, I'm not in a place of, you know, writing or feeling like a victim at all. And um, I think I'm still trying to understand some of it, but not from a poor me, <laughs> you know, or a, I feel... Million different ways. A lot of people show up at the page to get attention for a victim story, especially now when it's so easy to write stuff with computers and everything and blogs. But if you show up at the page to give attention because you've been to hell and you know the way out, that's when you owe the world your story. Oh, oh gosh, thank you. Yeah, it would be hubris not to speak. There are times, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, there are times when silence is a lie. Ooh, that's poignant, isn't it? Yeah. And and so let's talk a little bit about, um, I don't know if I've been living under a rock or what, but I just learned maybe a year ago about the victim, hero, villain triangle. And can you talk a little bit about the concept of how you can remove yourself from the triangle? Yeah, you're actually, I think, talking about something called the Karpman drama triangle. It was uh, sort of spelled out by a psychologist named Stephen Karpman. And a lot of people live in this psychological triangle where everybody has one of three roles to play in the world. First is the victim. And we're all born little and helpless in a world that is very difficult where we're all going to die. So everybody gets to play the victim at some point, right? Mm -hmm. And then the two other parts are the persecutor. The victim identifies someone as a persecutor. And the, uh, the other role is rescuer. And what happens is the persecutor does something and the victim says, how dare you? And, you know, I'm being, well, you know, you take politics, look at politics. It's all Cartman Triangle on TV news now. Whether it's one party or the other, they'll say, we're a victim of the other party's policies. Victim, victim, we have to fight back. And then they do hideous, horrible things um, that victimize the other party. So then the other party's going, you're the persecutor, we're the victim. And then some people race in to say, oh, honey, they say to the victim, it's all right, it's all right, we're go- I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to fix you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight the persecutor for you, I'm going to fight for you. And all the politicians will say to us, I'm going to fight for you against the persecutor. And it just, these three roles go round and round and round. And all the victims, 
all the persecutors see themselves as victims and all the rescuers actually see themselves as victims because they have to be saving the victim and they have to resist the persecutor. Nobody feels like they have any power or free will. And it's just an absolute nightmare. The alternative to that, which was spelled out by a guy named um, David, yeah, David Emerald, is called the empowerment dynamic. And it's the, the triangle still exists, but you switch the way you see each role. So if you are in a, a place of persecutor, or if you think you have a persecutor, you say, that is my challenger. That is, so the last book I wrote is a novel that's an allegory. And, and this woman has to fall in love with a person who's very similar to Donald Trump, I'll say it. And in the end, she needs him to challenge her to rise to her full power. Without him, she couldn't do that. Um, so your persecutor becomes your challenger. And by the way, I wrote that book before Trump even ran for president. So the rescuer, if you're busy running in and rescuing people, if you're like paying off debts for the gambling addicts in your life or whatever, you change that to being a coach, according to David Emerald. So instead of, oh, poor you, let me help you, you say to the apparent victim, Wow, interesting situation. What are you going to do about it? Mm. Very different. And this is where I think David Emerald is really a genius because the last role, victim, becomes creator. If you are in a place of victimization, it is an opportunity to join with the creative force to solve this particular puzzle. And I always cite um, Viktor Frankl, who in Auschwitz wrote there are two ways to go to the gas chamber, free or not free. Mm. He used Auschwitz as an opportunity for him to learn what keeps people alive in the midst of absolute horror. And he wrote this amazing book and built his life's work on what he created as a prisoner at Auschwitz. Amazing book. So, yeah. yeah. So if you're feeling like a victim... Think of Viktor Frankl and figure out a way to be creative in your circumstance and you will be off the triangle. Yeah. Okay. That's great. I hadn't heard that, the, the switch, the empowerment dynamic. So that's very, very helpful. Uh, so yes. while we're on it, just even if it's, if you're able to briefly touch on the pyramid and the pool um, and for anyone listening, if you go to YouTube, if you just Google Martha Beck, pyramid and the pool and click on video, you will see this awesome video that she has created and you'll get the full, it's not even that long. Is it like eight minutes or something? But it's so good. And if you could share a little bit about that, I would, I would love it. Sure. Well, I'm going to get a little bit woo woo here. Since I was four, three or four, I remember thinking that I needed to be part of something that would change the world. Um, and I didn't know what it was, but I had a sense of mission and a sense that others were in it with me. And as I got older, I started to narrow it down. I couldn't imagine what it was. I just felt this force pushing me toward it. And along about the time I got to graduate school, I got my, I got three Harvard degrees in case to balance the woo woo, um, <laughs> and my PhDs in, so in sociology. And by that time I had this half-formed feeling that this 
this mission, this change would be a transformation of the way humans think. And that there would be this transformation of consciousness in a very essential way. And that it would cause people to live differently in social groups. So I've been studying this forever. And uh, as most of us know, the way our, the way almost all societies are structured now is as a pyramid with the powerful at the top. And it goes down to the disenfranchised and the poor at the bottom of the pyramid. That is most of the people in the world. And the powerful are very few. And they live at the top of the pyramid and exploit the people on the bottom. And I studied China, where communism took over to try to stop that from happening. And all it did was flip the people who were in those positions. So they say in China, um, under capitalism, man exploits man. But under communism, it's the other way around. Because that pyramid just replicates itself. And in later years, I've been thinking, okay, the, the transformation of consciousness is what is called in the East the awakening or enlightenment. And I've started studying that. And I thought, what would a society of awakened people look like? And the image that came to me was of a a level pool of water, glassy calm, but everyone's position in it is like a drop of water or a stream of water pouring into the pool and creating uh, ripples that go outward. So our presence, our degree of presence in the world is what establishes our power in that society. In the other society, it's how much can we dominate and take from other people. So I thought, okay, it's got it's a pyramid. It's got to change into a pool. How the heck is that going to happen? Mm-hmm. And in this video, you'll see I, I actually create this little prop because one day I realized, oh, my gosh, it's already happening, and the pyramid is located in the pool. And the pool which is human consciousness awakened, is fluid and clear. It is that water. And the consciousness of the rigid and the the locked-in power struggle human, that dissolves when we wake up as consciousness. And so I made a little pyramid out of sugar cubes, and then I poured water into it to make the pool. And sure enough, the, the pyramid from the bottom up starts to dissolve and become clear. And it, as it does, the pool becomes bigger and sweeter, but the sugar becomes fluid and able to move in any direction and lucid, right? Mm-hmm. So this is what I think right now as a sociologist, that the pyramid is in the pool. The pool is already dissolving it, but it's so silent and so different. It's not revolution, it's dissolution. And that's never happened before. And the people at the very top will be the last ones to realize that the, the, the so-called threat to the system, which isn't really a threat, it's, a, it's an awakening, doesn't come from another powerful ruler. It comes from the awakening of all of us little people on the street. And it just gently dissolves the, the injustices of the societies we've already had. That's my dream. Oh my goodness. And so when I, when I watched it, I was thinking, everybody needs to see this and hear it. And how are, are you sharing this more with the world, amplifying this out into the universe? universe or Oh yeah. It's, a science would be a lie, right? I mean, this is where my right. joy comes from. <laughs> like, tell right. me how you're... Yeah. So 
Yeah, I'm writing a book. It's called The Integrity Cleanse. And it's about how the way to transform your consciousness is to be to live in absolute integrity, um, which is a huge, massive challenge. It's it's also the most it's since I wrote Finding Your Way in a Wild No, 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 not that one. Finding Your Own North Star. <laughs> um I just basically would in all my other self-help books, I'd kind of repeat what I was what I'd said before because publishers wanted me to keep doing it. They like it. They like bestsellers and people want to hear that. But this one, so I stopped writing them for a while because my daughters kept saying, Why do you keep writing the same damn book? <laughs> and I I was waiting for something really new to offer people. And this next book is really new for me and I've not read it in other self-help books and it's really helping me. And I know that's the way to communicate to other people and it feels like play and it feels like love. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. So it's a go. And this makes sense because I've seen you use the hashtag integrity cleanse on Instagram. And that was going to be one of my questions because it piqued my curiosity. I'm like, Hmm, is this some like club that I can get into. <laughs> well, this, I was playing with one of my friends. One of my dear friends is Maria Shriver. And she just put out a book that defied publishing norms by zipping to the top of the bestseller list. And we were talking about it. And I said, how do you sell a book these days? My goodness, how did you do that? And she said, I challenge you go on Instagram and post at least once a day and always tag the integrity cleanse, even though it doesn't exist yet. And I was like, but it doesn't exist yet. And she said, that doesn't matter. I challenge you. So it felt like a game. Yep. It felt like play with my friend. So I started doing it. And that's why it's all over my Instagram, even though it doesn't exist yet, because I, I took the challenge and it's fun to take a challenge. It is. So, it's working too. I mean, I wanted to be, I'm like, well, what, I want to use this hashtag. This sounds integrity cleanse. Who doesn't want that? You know, is this some right. integrity diet or? <laughs> Most people don't want to do it because well. it means being true to yourself, really true to yourself. Like at first it's just like, oh, I'm going to find out where I'm really miserable and maybe tell myself the truth for a change. But when you get to the later stages of it, it's like, does my facial expression really match what I'm feeling? If it doesn't, I'm lying and I should change that. Mm. And what happens is you stop living according to culture and you start living according to your nature. And not everyone is going to like that, folks. But, oh, my God, the people who do like it are your real people, your heart tribe, your true family, your real friends. And we got a pool to make, you know? Yeah. Well, why not now? Why not now is right. When, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, wow, that does sound like some really tough work, tough self-work. But then knowing you are all about play, does the book show us ways to make it playful to get to that alignment oh, yeah. with integrity? I would, I would suspect. Okay, good. As my son always says, I hope so. He has Down syndrome and you'll say something to him like, you're going to sweet dreams tonight. And he'll say, I hope so. so. I hope so. I hope it's playful. I'm having super fun writing it. So there you go. Then, then it will it definitely will come through. Well, I just have a couple of quick rapid fire questions and then I'll let you off the hook. What keeps you up at night? The sound of foxes calling in the forest, or I just got back from Africa and 
I would all, I always wake up to hear the lions or the hyenas, Mm -hmm. the sounds of the wild keep me up because I don't want to miss them. Ooh. And all time favorite book. The Tao Te Ching translated by Stephen Mitchell, um, who is now a dear friend of mine. That book guided me and I kept it beside me. And it was when I finally discovered it, I, I was like, this is why I had to study Chinese so that I could really internalize this brilliant book that was written 2,500 years ago and has been called the wisest book ever written. It's so short. Um, In Chinese, it's quite opaque because it's ancient Chinese and Chinese is a very dense language. Stephen Mitchell took that book and um, I think in the 90s created, and he was a Zen monk. He's married to Byron Katie. And he is, I think, one of the greatest wordsmiths in English ever. And he wrote something that is so, such a brilliant communication of that intense wisdom. And I'm writing about this in the Integrity Clans. After I'd been obsessed with this book for 20 years, uh, he and Byron Katie were at a place where I was being interviewed and they called me and wanted to drive me back to my ranch, which was three hours away. And along the way, Stephen the author of the Tao Te Ching that I love so much that is my favorite book ever, began to question me about my integrity. Where was I living in absolute integrity? Where was I doing things I didn't want to do? And he is in such, he and Katie both are in such complete integrity Mm -hmm. that it started me on this whole new path three years ago. And um, that's what I'm writing about. So your favorite book, if you hold it in your heart enough, will bring in miracles And that's my favorite book ever. Wow. Full circle. Next question, a little lighter. Pirates or ninjas? Who is tougher and why? Totally ninjas. Absolutely. Because they weren't always drunk, I think. (laughs) Just only occasionally drunk. There you go. That's a good one. That's fair. Yes. You're in a crappy mood. How do you get to happy eventually? It doesn't have to be right away, but how do you get there? Make something, make something, make something, make something, make something, make anything, make soup, make um, a paper mache poodle, make a book, make a play, make a video. The moment you get into the energy of creation, you are not a victim. You are a creator and you are aligned with creation itself and creation itself is fascinated by the world so wow yeah oh so good so good and final question what advice would you give to your younger self trust yourself and trust the world as crazy and scary and dark as it seems trust the world if you trust yourself and you follow your path the world rises to meet you and it cares for you I never would have believed it, but now looking back, I I can say that. Well, thank you so much for your time. And this has been such a highlight for me to get to talk to you. I would have never imagined in 2011 that I would be speaking with you years later. Isn't it fun? Oh, life is fun. Yes. It We're is. Just our friends. It's, it's awesome. A fun game. Yes. Well, thank you. And gosh, it'll be exciting to see the Integrity Cleanse when it comes out to read it and 
and just absorb. Thank you so much. And best of everything with your book as well. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. Hit me up on social media to let me know what you think. I'm at Amy Jo Martin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I want to hear your why not now moments so I can share them on the show. Just send me a note to why not now at amyjomartin.com. For show notes and other offers, you can visit amyjomartin.com forward slash why not now. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter for exclusive content and announcements. A big thanks to Rock Salt Music for all of the tunes by the talented John Coggins. And of course, a hat tip to Richard Gruer for